Good morning, everyone. Welcome home. Welcome back. Or both. <laughs> it's good to be back. I was away in uh, the mighty country of California for a few, turns out to be a few weeks. And uh, I can say I'm happy to be back in the tranquility of this place. A lot of movement out there, I have to say. I've had a, of course, I always start the same way, but it's always true. I had a great time this week uh, putting together these thoughts. I haven't ever spoken on Holy Mother, it turns out. I've always uh, talked about a lot of different things. Um, (laughs) If I was honest, I would have to say it's probably mostly because the complete works were online. (laughs) I could search them easier. But uh, Holy Mother, it's funny that I haven't. And when I realized that I hadn't spoken about Mother, I was uh, quite surprised, actually. Because uh, everything, I really attribute everything that I've gotten, everything that I've enjoyed in my spiritual life is, is, is from my mother, from uh, that gulf that she reached across uh, some 16 years ago now. And uh, there's a special, a special role of, of God manifesting as mother uh, because mothers can reach places uh, that nobody else can, let alone fathers or or incarnations and saints and whatnot. Uh, mothers can can reach farther down into the heart and uh, can pull pull us from darker places. I think, and uh, I'm very excited this morning to talk about it. Honored this morning to talk about it, and. Uh, and certainly entertained, uh, because Mother is always uh, a great deal of fun uh, to talk about. Her words are always so personable and so uh, kind and so gentle and so sweet. So before we jump into that, <laughs> let us do uh, the equivalent of my Sanskrit chanting and remind us of the most important things uh, that give us a framework for anything that we say or do. The first of which is our call to sincerity and earnestness by the master in our spiritual life, uh, just in our life. Why call it a spiritual life? All life. For an authenticity um, uh, in the things that we do, uh, sincerity that will take us forward, and an earnestness and effort uh, that will propel us to to go higher uh, and to find that truth within. Uh, Because the master, as we know, says that if you have sincerity and earnestness, uh, God will take care of the rest in getting you uh, to where you need and want to be. The second is is very much like it, because uh, it's the cause of our authenticity. And that is from the beloved Jesus when he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Vedanta putting them both together because it is God within us that causes us to love one another and to to find uh, that authenticity with our spirit, that authenticity with our nature um, in each other. And then the last, of course, is truth. Uh, Just making a commitment to truth. Thakur pointed out and understood that uh, spiritual life is about discovering that truth inside about returning to an internal integrity inside so that your thought, your actions, and your words come from the same place, are in alignment, not mismatched. 
So all those things really, interestingly enough, the more I say them, the more I grow in understanding that they're all the same thing. Love, authenticity, and truth are so interconnected that you can't really pull them apart. So let's make a commitment to those things, uh, first and foremost in our spiritual life. If we walk away with nothing else, uh, if we commit to those things, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Hafiz has a poem. Uh, I'm attracted to the word lawlessness in the uh, title because I uh, have maybe an unhealthy love of mischief and and uh, the the you know in the the little rascals the ones always getting in trouble are the ones that are always the most endearing to me. So the wonderful lawlessness. Late in winter, winter, my heart is still a rose in bloom. Late in summer. I still have snow-covered peaks upon my back where all can play and slide. At night, I need no candle, no lamp, for my soul has forever awakened to there being just the reality of light and the wonderful lawlessness of God. Late in winter, I need no heat, for I have entered that infinite fire. Come. Build a sled. Find a grand hill within my verse. You and I and God should play there more often. Play upon a peak such as Hafiz that the beloved has carved so well. So that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to call it play. One, because it, uh, it gives me an excuse for a jumble of thought. <laughs> And, uh, uh, um, and two, just because that's what I enjoy, just frolicking and playing. For me, spiritual life has become that more and more. And uh, I've always tried to treat my relationship with the divine in that way. If, uh, if all of this is God's play, I consider that a default invitation to do so. So I invite you into that room this morning, and uh, let's go forward with that kind of spirit and have a good time. And with that, make it informal. If you have a question... Speak out. <laughs> if you have an objection, wait till later. <laughs> and we'll go on. Now, normally in, during the week, I, uh, I, I, uh, when it starts, I, I pray. I talk to Ma, and I'm, I tell her, I, like, okay, Ma, these are your folks, and you've got to give them something, preferably yourself. Preferably come and spend time with us. And uh, so I consider this lecturing to be a practice of mine to get out of the way. And uh, so in the first few days, I just kind of open my ears to the world to see what Mother is working on in people's lives and, and whatnot. So when I hear, like, our nightly reading, we read through scriptures, and in the classes, certain things are asked, and people mention certain things. And then during the week, just my interactions with people, things they're talking about, things they're asking me about. And then uh, around the middle of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, I go, and I start rummaging to create my little hodgepodge of scripture that sort of highlights a lot of these ideas and a lot of the things that I've been hearing uh, that I like to pretend, perhaps, uh, that Mother has given to me as the things she's interested in. And then on Thursday and Friday, I, I kind of just start reading it over and just make it part of my meditations and my walks and my whatnots, uh, hoping that it falls into an outline. And uh, on Saturday night, usually, in, in a mild panic, trying to keep my ego out of the way, which is causing great fear. 
I uh, try and organize it in a nice beginning, middle, and end. And uh, this week, I was in a great panic uh, because there's not an outline, I'm going to tell you, frankly. And I was very disturbed with that yesterday uh, and was, was uh, praying about it and thinking about it quite a bit. And I had an event happen that Mother uh, really opened my eyes to a new way of doing it. This morning, Mother said she doesn't think in terms of outlines. She's a mother. She says that, uh, you know, I spent my life preparing food for the devotees and preparing food for the master and, and taking care of people's needs. She said, what I gave you this week is a recipe. So uh, let's approach it that way, and hopefully that also lets me off the hook when you get to the end and be like, where did he go with that? <laughs> what, what was he thinking? So it's a collection of, of questions and answers and quotes from Holy Mother, things that she said. Uh, but I asked her to give us a peek behind the curtain uh, so that they weren't just the same old quotes and the same old ideas, that we can dig in there and come up with a practice, come up with maybe even a a metaphysics or a theology from the very simple and straightforward teachings of our Ma. So we're going to start. We're going to talk about mind, the mind and Ma, and... uh, Surprisingly enough, she does talk about it quite a bit, um, but never from a a metaphysical perspective. She's always very practical and very, well, motherly, you know, in the way she approaches her subject. But to be clear, when we talk about mind this morning, uh, we're talking about that lens uh, that stands between uh, the witness, that part of you that's sitting there just watching this morning, and what it's witnessing out here, and then the lens that it's looking through that, that, that assigns meaning and value and uh, <laughs> karma, bondage, struggle, freedom, whatnot. It's all in there. Uh, so we're going to talk about that component this morning. It's not the brain uh, like that. It's, a, it's, it's what uh, the brain is what is manifested by mind, which is an easy thing to say because everything is manifested by mind, which we'll see from Mother uh, now, Mother is talking, she's talking with uh, some of the women devotees, and they're having this odd conversation of somebody had touched something impure and was very concerned about it, uh, actually a little bit too concerned about it, and how to properly cleanse herself. And Mother uh, mother is trying to uh, really temper the situation, and she says, I, I too had to purify myself for coming into contact with filth on several occasions, but I only chanted the name of Govinda a few times and felt pure. The mind is everything. The mind is everything. It is in the mind alone that one feels pure and impure. A man, first of all, must make his own mind guilty, and then alone can he see another man's guilt. To see the faults of others, one should never do it. I never do so. Forgiveness is tapasya. Disciple. Swami Vivekananda used to say, suppose a thief entered the house and stole something, the idea of a thief would flash into your mind, but a baby has no such idea. Therefore, it would not see anyone as a thief. Mother, that's true indeed. He who has a pure mind sees everything pure. 
So this is, this is one of the reasons to talk about mind, because everything is mind. Now, that's not a, that's, there's no sub, sub, uh, footnote on that. There's no star saying, oh, well, not this or that. Everything is mind. Everything that, that we see right now are looking around the room, uh, is a matter of the lens, a matter of what we're looking through. And the reason that it's so important to us is that it's how we interpret the world. It's going to determine whether we're able to make gold or whether we suffer in this world, whether we're able to mint knowledge and freedom or whether we're going to mint bondage and, and, <laughs> and misery, which has almost lost its meaning. We throw it around so much. But real wretchedness, that's another one of those words that doesn't mean anything. Uh, somebody has to let me know a good word that really means misery, <laughs> wretchedness, to emphasize. And uh, it's an odd thing because a lot of times in our life we're, we live in a relative world because the mind is a relative instrument. It's a relative lens. It always needs uh, a point to relate a new piece of information to. You never, you can sit anytime, actually do it as an experiment. It's a great meditation. And try and think of something that you think you know that doesn't depend on something else that you know. And you'll find that it's impossible. So the mind is relative, okay? Which means you can't always trust it. Because if you, if you expose it to, to negative stuff enough, it's going to start returning negative results for all of your queries. It's kind of like Google News. You know, if you, if you start looking up studies or reading stories on, um, on Mary Kay, <laughs> Google's suddenly going to start showing you stories on Mary Kay. And what happens is that after a while, when you go to the Google News page and you see these constant stream of stories on Mary Kay, you start thinking that Mary Kay owns four-fifths of the world and that everybody thinks about it and that it's really important and the world is about Mary Kay because it's relative. Your mind is that way. So Mother is saying, she's giving us a teaching here that is a practice. It's not just a teaching in, in like a general idea. She's giving you a practice your mind is everything to you. It's everything you experience. She's saying, purify it. Make sure that it's showing you an accurate picture. And to do that, she's saying, do not make your mind guilty because only then does it start seeing the guilt of others. And by seeing the guilt of others, by emphasizing the guilt of others, by looking at the, the negative side of others, you train your mind to continue in that spiral. And you'll begin to see yourself in that light as well. And what happens then? Bitterness happens then. Uh, sarcasm happens then. Cynicism happens then. And uh, a lack of inspiration happens. You don't, you don't want to get up and try again. You, it, it becomes stupid. That's stupid. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. You know, spiritual life. Yeah, whatever. I tried that. You know, those kinds of things. Forgiveness is tapasya. So she's telling you, first of all, she's wanting you to realize that, first of all, if you see the faults of others, that uh, you have to know that it's, that it's in you. It's, it's your own guilt that is allowing you to see that. You know? If, if uh, you have always given a gift to somebody in order to give something, get something back from them or to like, manipulate them in some way, if that's been your means of gift-giving, and then you see somebody give someone a gift you immediately think that they're trying to manipulate that person because that's what you would do, because that's what your world is. 
So you start to live in a world, you start to become bound by a world that's bounded by your way of thinking, you know, your way of interpreting things. Instead of knowing what's actually happening, that that person gave that person a gift out of love and appreciation, you live in a cynical world that seems real to you where that person gave a gift to manipulate somebody else because you assume your world is their world. And Mother wants you to know that because your mind is everything to you, be careful. Do not assume that you know things you do not know. I tell you one thing. Okay, I have this in red and bolded. Because if, if, at least for some, an incarnation of God in the form of Divine Mother says to you, I tell you one thing, that means listen to this. This is important. I tell you one thing. If you want peace... That's an easy one. Who doesn't want peace? I tell you one thing, if you want peace, do not find fault with others. Rather, see your own faults. Learn to make the world your own. No one is a stranger, my child. The whole world is your own. That's one of the most famous quotes of Mother. It's probably the only one that many people know. And it's enough, believe it or not, because there's a whole life's practice there that will bring you to realization by doing that. Do not find fault with others. That's part A. And part B, rather see your own faults. Why? Because we take the previous quote from Mother to know that it's because of our guilt that we can see the fault of the other person. That's your hint right there. You want to purify your mind, then make a list of what's wrong with the other people around you, and you will find the faults of your own mind that need to be addressed. You will find the fault in you that has to be addressed. It's not that other person. It's not the world around you that's messed up. (laughs) It's you. Now, she doesn't tell you that so that you can go and then just be you know, stuck. She's telling you that because she wants the whole world to be your own. She's saying the fact of the matter is you are everyone. Your brother, sister, friend, mother, father, to everyone. That's the reality of where we live. That's the reality of who you are. And so she wants you to take responsibility for what you think is wrong with the world, what you think is wrong with that other person. It's a great exercise to do that, actually, to pick that person that's just, that just annoys the tar out of you. Just, <laughs> we've all got one, I assume. Uh, you know, somebody, just to sit there and just write down, I hate it when, you know, this person does this or when they do that or just drives me crazy when I see them, you know, such and such and such. Think about that, and then take it into a meditation. And don't meditate on them doing it and how much you hate them for it. (laughs) Meditate on the second half of the quote. Rather, see your own fault. What is it in me that is allowing me to see that? Because you can only see selfishness in the other person when it offends your own selfishness, right? So when that, my favorite illustration, you're standing in line, there's four pieces of pizza, you're fifth in line. (laughs) you're like okay you're nervously watching going along hoping somebody in there doesn't like pizza and then the guy the second guy in line takes two pieces 
What's your immediate thought? Oh, I was so selfish about wanting that pizza. I'm so happy he got two pieces. <laughs> now your first thought is what? That selfish, non-thinking person. I, what? There's not enough pizza for everybody, and he takes two pieces. Who's he thinking about? Nobody but himself. Right? That's your number one. So you sit and think. That's an easy one. Obviously, you're thinking about yourself and only about yourself. You are seeing his selfishness because it is your selfishness, concerned only about you getting your piece of pizza, not being happy at all that he was in a good place in line and got two. And God blessed him <laughs> and cursed you with being fifth. So it's a, it's, it's a matter of, of, of living. See, so if you take responsibility like that, then you don't have to decide that you hate someone or that you don't like someone. You can see that it's your own fault. And you can own responsibility for that and you can decide not to be like that because it's your mind and it's everything to you. That's your responsibility. Be, re be responsible for your ability to see fault. She goes on. She talks about this quite a bit. And a lot of these verses, they say the same thing, but she adds little nuances, little things, depending on who she's saying it to, which is why I included all of them. Man finds faults in others after bringing down his own mind to that level. Does anything ever happen to another if you enumerate his faults? It only injures you. There has been, this has been my attitude. Hence, I cannot see anybody's faults. If a man does a trifle for me, I try to remember him even for that. A trifle means a small good thing, you know, a silly nice gesture, lets you in in traffic, you know, something like that. Now, the important thing about this to me, the thing that's striking is she says, I cannot see another person's faults. I can't see them. That is such a rich statement in so many ways, in many. One, when I go to her, and I am feeling wretched about myself, I can know she can't see it. Ma can't see it. She's not look, looking at me thinking, you, you did, oh, you, I saw you in the parking lot. I, I saw that. And you, uh, 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 mm -mm. Ma sees you. She sees you as she sees herself. A divine incarnation of God. And that's how she will treat you. That's how she will welcome you. That's how happy she is when you sit down to spend time with her. You know, when you sit down to repeat her name or to meditate on her, her ideal or in Thakur's ideal or Swamiji's, she's equally happy because there's no line between them, between any of these ideals. They all dwell within. So that's the first thing that I really like about that. Thanks, Ma. She can't see my faults. She's not looking for them. That's a very nice thing. The second thing is that she herself at another time says that she used to see nitpick at the faults of everyone around her. So she wasn't always like that. She used to be like me. And she fixed it. She fixed it with this practice. She said, instead of seeing their faults, I took responsibility for the faults, saw that it was in my own mind, took responsibility for that and fixed it. And then not only that, but I decided I didn't want to just be neutral. I started remembering people for the good things that they did for me, even if they were trifling, even if they were insignificant, you know. 
Like when somebody, <laughs> I had a funny experience. Where was I? Just this week it comes to mind. Oh, I was at the post office. There was a horrendous line at the post office this week. Why is anybody going to the post office this week? But there was a, there was a huge line out the door, and both Swami A and I were there, and he was waiting in line for the electronic box that would send the package, and I was going to take a gamble on the long line, and we were going to see who got there first. <laughs> and while I was, I was literally standing in line, and the line was so long that it came back and bent around, and the door to the post office was right here. This is very important, I assure you. <laughs> and this woman comes in the door of the post office and stands in line at the corner where it turns. I, I assume not realizing that I'm standing here in line, but she sees me, and, but she stops and stands there in line. And then she goes over, she, she establishes herself, and then she goes to the table and writes the address on her envelope. And as soon as she finishes, she comes back over and she, was, and she says to me, oh, I was standing in line in front of you. <laughs> and, I, and so you know, had, I, had I not been putting this lecture together, so nicely at that time and read these things, I've been like, mm, uh-huh. <laughs> like, uh-uh. I, I remember we looked at each other when you came in the door? <laughs> but instead I decided, okay, let's pretend she really thinks that. Let's pretend she's not trying to cut in front of me, that she really did think that maybe I was just biding my time at the post office, and she came and got in line. And so I... I let it go, and I, I turned it into a practice. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to pretend like I didn't do anything. You know, <laughs> I'm going to pretend this doesn't bother me. I'm going to send nice thoughts her way. I'm going to pretend that she's pure, that she didn't intend to, to cut in line. But see, that is what Mother is talking about here. It would have been nicer if none of that ever occurred to me. But it, it really did, and it really was a practice, and it really was hard. <laughs> but I invite you, take up this practice. This, this is the practice of following mother, seeing mother's love, assuming the best in everyone around you by seeing the best in yourself and, ex and emphasizing the best in yourself, assuming that people aren't cutting in line. Assume, assume that everyone is pure so that you can be so that it doesn't disturb you, because what does it matter? I ended up not waiting in line anyway because Swami A won, and his, <laughs> his line got there first. So see, it was a non-thing. If, if I had gotten disturbed and gotten in a bad mood and carried that with me the rest of the day and thought the rest of the world was trying to cut in line, uh, my mind is everything to me. It would, have, it would ruin me, because that would become my life. That's how I would begin to see people. So she says, don't bring your mind down to that level. Instead, appreciate people for even the most insignificant things that they do in your favor. Start seeing the world that way. If you hear a ton of bad news, but you hear one good piece of news, let that be the one you talk about. Let, let that be the story you propagate for the rest of the day. You know, Because we live in dangerous times in this regard. There's a lot of hate and there's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of prejudice in the air these days and a lot of people emphasizing it and a lot of stories building it up. Choose not to see the world that way. These are your fellow humans, your own people that are being talked about. You know, Make the world your own. They are yours. Should anyone ever utter a thing that hurts another's feelings? 
An unpleasant truth, though true, must not be uttered, for that grows into a habit. By indulging in rude words, one's nature becomes rude. One's sensitivity is lost if one has no control over one's speech. Everyone can break something down, but how many can build it up? This is our sweet mother in a very simple way, outlining a beautiful way of life on a very challenging path, you know, for us. An unpleasant truth, even if it's true, shouldn't be uttered. Because the world is your own, why would you want to hurt? Now there is a subtext to this. You can only ever correct somebody to the degree that you love them, to the degree that they know you love them. If you utter an unpleasant truth to somebody in the spirit of helping them, it truly, not correcting them, (laughs) not being right and, and manifesting their wrong, but out of love, like the way your mother would correct you for something. Because it's not, it's not that Ma never told somebody that they were doing something wrong or that they were doing something improper. It's not like that. But when she told them, that person was confident and knew that she loved them. So if the person you're saying an unpleasant truth to is confident and knows that you love them, then to that degree you can help them you can utter a truth that might, not, that might be hard for them to hear. But the emphasis on that is not their fault and whether you should utter it or not, but on how much you love them and whether they know it and trust it or not. So spend your time building up that love and that, not, that trust. <laughs> not so that you can go tell them what's wrong all the time, but, <laughs> but so that love becomes your nature. You know, it becomes the thing that you see, that you see in the world. Don't indulge in rude words, which is a, a big one. Not, uh, I'm going to break it into cultures just because I still see it that way. Uh, in in, in, in uh, American male culture, I'll say, maybe I won't say that. Maybe I'll just say in the people I've hung around with in the past, that cynical kind of jib-jab, you know, insult your friends, um, actually, I, I did see it even in our uh, even in uh, our youth uh, 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 camp this last summer. That that's kind of become a way that people interact with each other. That saying rude things to each other, just jesting, you know, making fun of each other. And I saw, you know, a pattern in the week. There was there was a, a one one guy in particular who I noticed because I was the objective adult <laughs> in the room. I noticed that he continually got these little jabs more than everybody else did during that week. And I began to feel that hurt. I began to feel like even though it was fun and nobody really disliked him and nobody really anything, they were all joking, I saw the effect of that on a soul, on a person. And 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 I reflected and I knew that Mother was showing that to me because that's how I interact uh, you can you can ask one of my brothers here in the monastery. You know that I quite not great not a lot, but I have said abrupt or inappropriate things to him as a joke, as a big brother. But afterwards, mother mother gave me a little kick. You know this week, uh, twice I did it this week, and both times she gave me a little kick, and uh, and said no. Although that seems like fun to talk rudely like that, it's going to make your nature rude. 
you're going to start automatically being that way, and it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt you, but it's also going to hurt the people around you. So don't do that. Everyone can break something down. How difficult is it? Anybody, any one of us can stand up and talk about how the world is going this way and the country's going that way and this person's doing that wrong and our boss doesn't know how to run a thing or, you know, the whatnot, this one institution, oh gosh, are they doing that again for crying out loud? Anybody can do that. That takes no skill, no talent, no effort, nothing. That's nothing. You're doing nothing. <laughs> Who can build up? Fix it. Be positive. You know, just uh, yesterday I came back on my walk and just down the second dip, if you turn left from here, there's a little bit of a hill that goes down the uh, uh, side of the road there. And there's so much trash in there, you know, and it's kind of it where the poor houses are, where the smaller houses are, I assume the poor kind of neighborhood. And I found myself being a little bit judgmental, the hint of it coming around the edges. Again, thanks to Ma and, being, and studying these things, my mind was kind of becoming aware of some of the ways I think. And I, and I was kind of in my mind thinking, oh, look, there's no discipline around here. Look, these kids get off, coming off from school, just throwing their trash on this hill like this. And I caught myself. I thought anybody can criticize. Anybody can break down and create a prejudice like that. Why don't you clean it up? I don't know. Uh, but I decided I, 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 I would, and now that I've said it out loud... I'm going to have to do this. Uh, so uh, I'm going to make a thing of it. So one day, I'll let you all know, we're going to have a cleanup day down the road here. <laughs> and we're going to get trash bags, and we're going to go build up instead of tear down, because I was an idiot. Uh, so anyway, that's the kind of spirit that we need to walk around with. If you see something wrong, fix it. If you see something that's broken, repair it. If you see something that would take very little effort on your part, or even a big effort, you make the decision. I'm going to make it a better place because everything is mine. And if I learn to live this way, the world will be this way to me. I will see the world this way. Because one of the magic things that Vedanta will teach you is that there is nothing outside of you. Nothing out there has a value, positive or negative. It is you that assigns the value to the world. And if your world is a dark and dismal place, that's a call to reflection. That's a call to consideration. Because the world is not a dark and dismal place. For every bad thing that's happening out there, there's a good thing that's happening out there. For every person hated, there's a person loved. It's for you and what you're filling your mind with and what you're choosing to give power to that determines the value of your world that you live in. That's why this teaching is important, and that's why Mother says it so many times in so many ways. She says, even when you try to attain Brahman, you will have to carry the mind too. When you attain to it, none of them will be there. All the present stage, the assist, at the present stage, the assistance of the mind is very necessary. It is the pure mind which shows a man the path. I wrote to my uncle these words of the mother, this person saying, and on this occasion the Holy Mother also said, As you turn the direction of the wicked mind, the mind itself will be able to grasp the chosen deity. However, you have nothing to worry. The master is holding you by the hand. In every circumstance, he is always with you. 
There's a couple of things in here that were beautiful to me. She says, one, the reason this is so important, the reason that you pay attention to these teachings, is one, because the mind is everything, and two, is because you're tied to it all the way up until realization. The mind you have is the mind you have to live with. It's the place you have to exist. You have your choice in that. It's a beautiful thing in that. So she suggests giving a turn to the wicked mind. You know, when you catch yourself being negative and seeing the trash on the side of the road and blaming all of those people for it, take responsibility and become the person that reaches out and takes care of the situation, fixes the situation, because that will turn your world around. It's the world you live in. It's the world you will die in, the world you have to carry with you for the rest of this life, and if you believe, the rest of the next life too. So be careful about that. But in that, to help you be positive, because you may be seeing a lot of negative things, you may be aware of a lot of negative things, she's also saying, don't worry. Don't, don't get anxious about it. Because she's given you to the Master. She's giving you to the divine. And he is watching for you, watching out for you constantly. In every circumstance, he is with you. Later in her life, she was writing about, uh, she was talking about Takor. And she says, it seems, this is when he was passing away. It seems that whatever the master had wanted to get done through this body has already been accomplished Now my mind is constantly directed toward him. Nothing else brings happiness to the mind. That's one of those sentences you like to read across and you just kind of keep going. It doesn't make the impact that it could. Now my mind is constantly directed toward God, toward her ideal. Nothing else brings happiness to the mind. Nothing else brings happiness to the mind. You know, Mother is saying that for us. It's like all those things that you think might bring happiness to the mind, you know, beautiful things in the world, good plays, downtown, nights at the club, you know, Mai Tais on the beach. All those things that you think bring pleasure to the mind don't. They don't. They do if you keep your boundaries small, you know. If you only think about the moment that you... uh, that, that you're engaging in the play, that's cool, but the play is over, and then you have to come home. You know, the Mai Tai on the beach, you get drunk and get sunburned, <laughs> forget to get up and get your sunscreen, and, uh, you know, are terribly burned, and, uh, you know, widen out, see the whole picture, for, because for any time that you force things into the positive without an authentic practice... You will descend into the equal distance negative. It's a rule of the universe. It's the way it goes. After that drunk night out with your friends where you call it a really great time, think about that next day. (laughs) It's horrible. And everybody repents of it the next day. Oh, my God, I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) You know, it's the the power of Maya, the one power Maya has. We talked about it at breakfast this morning is forgetfulness. You forget, and you only remember that good night, and you're like, oh, I'm going to do it again. (laughs) You forget that bad morning. Mother says the only thing that brings the mind happiness is to direct it toward toward your ideal. Direct it toward love. 
direct it toward your chosen ideal, thinking about Thakur or uh, Vivekananda or Ma or Buddha or Jesus or, you know, just your very best that you think humans can be. That's the only thing that will bring the mind happiness. And to the degree that you don't believe it, keep working on it. Mother is in a pure mind. She sees clearly. We're in a distorted mind, so if that doesn't seem true to us, know that it's because our mind is distorted. Know it's because we haven't done the work yet. And she talks about that now. These next few quotes that she gives us are about getting there. She says, everyone comes to me and solicits me so earnestly for initiation. <laughs> they get it and they go, but they don't, make their, they don't practice their japa regularly. Why regularly? Some do nothing at all. They take the mantra with so much sincerity, but why do they not practice it at all? It's not that hard. If one but sticks to a little practice, how much joy comes to one? Ah, with what joy and for how long Joganma and myself used to make japa at Rindaban. So you see in her life, and on the second half of her life, when she's done all this practice and all of this service, she's at a point where she's understanding the joy is coming in full measure to her. She can look back, ah, what joy. You know, from, from, from this side of, <laughs> of practice, when you look at it, you know, I know like when I first joined the monastery, I'd, I don't think you could have ever quoted me as saying, oh, what a great time in, in meditation I had yesterday. It was great sitting there for that 10 minutes doing, trying to think about God. It was wonderful. It wasn't. You know, the beginning is always just, seems to be inordinately a struggle, inordinately a struggle. But we see from Mother how she talks about it. Once the mind has begun to clear once you begin to see accurately, ah, oh, the joy that we used to have, me and Yogan Ma doing practice, you know. And this is one of those things, you know, we, we talk about these things all the time, about our practices. And Mother's saying, why, you know, they come, they're so sincere, they're so earnest. But when it comes to practice, either they're doing such a little bit or they're not doing any at all. She's bemoaning that. Why? Because of the joy she knows comes from it. Not because she's disappointed, you know, not like because she's some whatever. She's doing it because she knows the joy that has come in her life, the bliss that is a part of her living because of her practice, because of the fact that she was willing initially to do that kind of work, to make that kind of effort, to practice that kind of austerity. So she's saying to you and to me, you know, even if you just do a little practice, do it regularly. Stick to it. You know, I, I don't know what anybody's practice is in this room. So I'm assuming there's one or two of us that's not doing anything. If, if that's the case, I'm talking to you. <laughs> if everybody's doing it, I'm talking to myself. But, uh, you know, stay with it. Stay with it. She, and the disciple says to her, he says, oh, Now, here we go. If you practice spiritual discipline for some time in a solitary place, like Rishikesh, you will find that your mind has gained in strength, and then you can live in any place or in the company of anyone without being the least bit affected by it. 
but a sapling must be protected by a fence all around. But when it grows big, not even the cows and goats can injure it. Spiritual practice in a solitary place is essential. When worldly thoughts crop up in the mind and the mind and they possess it, then you should go away from the company of others and pray to him with tears in your eyes. He will remove the dross from your mind and he will give you understanding. Okay. Now I'm I'm going to I uh, this one got my mind uh, going <laughs> because we have a wonderful guest house here. Uh, we have a wonderful guest house. It's very nicely kept. It's clean. <laughs> Lots of room in it. And, and, and only out-of-towners use it. And uh, that, not that that's special here, not that I'm jumping on anybody here, but in San Francisco, I was there for 15 years, and San Francisco has a lovely 2,300-acre retreat center in the wilderness with a men's retreat house and a women's retreat house. And in 15 years... Uh, I never heard a single one of our own members use that retreat house for a spiritual practice. So I'm saying, you guys built this place. I get to enjoy it because I came after everything was finished. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's a wonderful thing. But my call is for you to come. Invest not, not just the material building of this place, you know, uh, and not this is not. I'm not finger pointing. I'm I'm just laying out an opportunity. Let's let's take it that way. Come, spend some time in this guest house. It's essential, Mother says, for your spiritual practice to, on occasion, step outside of your world, step outside of your circle of influences that your mind has created, and that just basically reinforce the way you're thinking and the way you're observing the world. Get outside of your habits. Come to a solitary place where nobody's going to bother you, where your phone's not going to ring, where your neighbor's not going to call, where your friends aren't going to stop by. Come to a solitary place and spend just a day or two days thinking about God. We have a lovely place for you to do that. Come do it. I'm lonely. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Come, spend time, and sit because it is beautiful and it's for that. You know, it's for that. So I invite you, come, use your own center to develop that spiritual place in your mind. Build that fence so that the goats and chickens out there can't pull you out of your center so that you don't beat somebody up at the post office for cutting in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) This disciple asks her, why is it that our mind's not absorbed in God when we repeat his name? I'm going to read just the questions here because this will sound a lot like uh, a Q&A sessions that many of us have been to. Why is it that our mind's not absorbed in God when we repeat his name? Mother, why is it that the mind does not become steady? Why is it that when I try to think of God, I find the mind drawn to other objects? Yeah. It's like, Ma, why can't I concentrate my mind well during meditation? Oh, mother, my mind is fickle and unsteady. Mother says, it will come about in due course. Even if the mind is not concentrated, do not give up the repetition of the holy word. Do your duty. While repeating the name, the mind will get fixed on itself and on the ideal, like a candle flame in a place protected by the wind. It is the wind alone that makes the flame flicker, in the same way our fancies and desires make our mind restless. 
I'm just going to cover a couple of things because I just see now that it's at the end here of my time. My child, the mind is like a wild elephant. It races with the wind. Therefore, one should discriminate all the time. One should work hard for the realization of God. Whenever the mind goes after anything other than God, consider that as transient and surrender the mind at the feet of the Lord. I say that perseverance and tenacity are necessary for success in all good work. Some others saying, one, don't worry. Don't, don't be consumed with your shortcomings. Uh, she, there's, a, there's a great one uh, where she goes on at the end. Uh, she says it's a complex, you know, it's, it's a mental illness to always be suspecting impurities and seeing faults in yourself. The more you emphasize these obsessions of yours, the more obsessed you become. It is true of all things. So this idea of grace and this idea of knowing your ideal, that mother fully accepts you, fully embraces you, is very important. So that when you do have your lapses, when you do make your mistakes, when you do your stupid things, when you accidentally beat somebody up in the parking lot, to know that you can come and be with mother. And she's not going to see that. She sees the ideal in you. Find peace in that. And she says, when your mind tries to grab you and take you away, there's one secret that will undo all the power of Maya, and that is to see the transience of it. That is to see the transience. This world will pass. This world is going. It's on its way out. It's not a forever place. You know? And to look at that and understand that. I love growing old for that reason. You know, I, I celebrate, I talk about it a lot, and I talk about it a lot because of verses like this. Because I'm falling in love with old age. This week I'm treating myself to a special treat. I've lost my glasses. So, or I haven't lost them. I misplaced them. <laughs> I know they're somewhere in the building because they were never went out. But, uh, you know, things like that. Know that these things. I watched, uh, I, sh- I watched a couple of very old people get out of the car this week. You know. And I saw how long it took them to get out of the car. And I could see on their faces how much apparent pain that was causing them to get out of that car. You know, And most of the time, you just don't think about that. Oh, that's old people. But I sat there and made myself contemplate for a few minutes. It's going to be that hard for me to get out of a car one day. It's going to be that much of an effort for me to get out of a car one day. So if you live your life counting on this body to be the vehicle for your enjoyment for your fulfillment and for your happiness and for your expression of life, beware. It will take you a good 10 minutes to get out of a car one day, and you'll be hurting the entire time. And if you haven't done the inner work of creating a beautiful mind, of putting your ideal at the center of a beautiful life, all you will have will be the pain of getting out of that car. All you will have is the the time that it takes for you to get your crippled, failing body out of a car. Now, I imagine that that can be repeated many times through the day, not just getting out of a car, getting out of bed in the morning, coming down the stairs to breakfast, putting putting on your shoes. You know, it's like, magnify that by, by 10. I mean, that's the end of life. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful because it's full of wisdom. And for the person who has done their practice, for the person who has disciplined their mind, for the person who has found the world to be their very own, 
They will sit in the midst of that horrible trial (laughs) and laugh and find a great joy. They will be the person who will be getting out of the car laughing, like, oh, my God, this hurts. (laughs) Good Lord Jesus, look what you've done to me. (laughs) Because they'll have an inner relationship that brings them light. They'll have an inner relationship that, that is in love with the world around them because they see that God has manifested in them and is coming out of them. That is the challenge. That is what's before us. When Manindra bowed at mother's feet, she said, what a strong faith your mother has. When asked to visit Varanasi, she remarked, this is my Varanasi. I shall not go anywhere else. Mother's telling us, do these practices, live like this, look at the divine and develop that relationship within, and this will be your Varanasi. This will be the delight of your life. This will be all you need. You know, if that Mai Tai up on the beach is what you needed, and you can't get out of a car, good luck getting on the airplane. <laughs> you know, create your Mai Tai. Forgive me, I know this is going out on tape, I'm sure, and all these people in India are going to hear me say this, and it's going to be like, oh my gosh. Create your Mai Tai on the beach in your heart. (laughs) Make that peaceful, beautiful world exist in you. Let it manifest. It is the truth of your being. So that when you can't get out of the car, you don't have to sit and think, oh, if only I could get to the beach. You can find your Brindaban where you are. And old age will become a manifestation of beautiful wisdom with a very humorous subplot of pain. <laughs> I heard Mother's alarm go off, so it's time to stop. I want to, I want to read a final poem because it's lovely. And then it's just a couple of announcements. They call to you to sing. Stones are longing for what you know. If they had the graceful movements of your feet and of your tongue, they would not stop laughing between their ecstatic dance steps and unbroken praise. Your heart beats inside of a sacred drum. Its skin is tanned and stretched. Our skin is alive and stretched with, that, with the wild molecules of God's most wonderful existence. Your mind and eyes are an immense silk cloth upon which all of your thoughts and movements paint. Your soul once sat on an easel on my knee. For ages I have been sketching you with myriad shapes of sounds and light. Now awake, my dear pilgrim, with your thousand swaying arms that need to caress the sky. Now awake, with your love for the friend and for creation, Help this old tavern sweeper Hafiz to celebrate. No more enemies from this golden view. All who have entered this holy mountain cave have dropped their shields, dropped their swords. We all cook together. Sorry. (laughs) We all cook together around a fire our yearning music builds. We share our tools and our instruments and our plates. We are companions on this earth, as the sun and the planets are in the sky. We are all centuries at our sacred humble posts, 
The stones and stars envy the movements of your legs and tongue and call you to sing on their behalf. The atoms in your cells and limbs are full of wonderful talents. They dance in the hidden choir I conduct. Don't sleep tonight, dear pilgrim, so I can lead you on my white mare to his summer house. This love you now have of the truth will never forsake you. Your joys, your sufferings on this arduous path are lifting your worn veil like a rising stage curtain. And will surely reveal your magnificent self so that you can guide this world like Hafiz in the hidden choir God and his friends will forever conduct. (laughs) 